0: friends, you're listening to How the West Was Cast, a podcast dedicated to the best of the western movie genre. So I bought the land just past yours on the west. Near the river. That's right. By God, I had
1: my eye on that land. But I'm glad you bought it instead of that goddamn western cattle company. Who are they? A couple of Eastern speculators. They bought 50,000 acres for raising cattle.
0: There are no cattle around here. There will be. See if cattle don't mix. No, they don't. No, they don't.
2: Well, hell, I'm gonna miss you,
1: Joe, but we'll be neighbors.
0: Don't crowd me, Frank.
1: Little Joe, you are the unfriendliest fella I ever met. And frankly, quite peculiar. That was a scene from The Ballad of Little Joe, a superb 1993 Western written and directed by Maggie Greenwald. And on today's very special episode, we'll speak with Maggie about making that film and about her love for the Western genre. Hello, my name is Matthew Chernoff and I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, a film historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. Now, before we continue, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Western Podcast. That's at, as in the at symbol, Western Podcast, all one word. Tell us about your favorite 90s Western, and we just might discuss it on a future episode. Also, if you enjoy our show and want to help support it, the best way you can do that is by subscribing to it on whatever platform you use. Okay, then. Andrew, when I first mentioned that I was going to approach Maggie about appearing on the podcast, I wasn't aware that The Ballad of Little Joe was a film that you were well familiar with, especially in the classroom. So tell me about that. Well, The Ballad of Little Joe is, uh, to my mind, the most unjustly
2: neglected of the 1990 cycle of Westerns and probably the most deserving of revaluation. I think it does what many of the greatest Westerns do. It uses the genre to tell a new story and also fleshes out the stories of many of the genre's minor character types. I include the movie every time I teach my Western film course, uh, offering the film as a kind of counterpoint to Unforgiven, which was released the year before. Uh, But I'm also able to put the film in dialogue with earlier Westerns with strong female characters, like the high-riding women played by Barbara Stanwyck. The film is always a a big hit with students. i go so far as to say it's actually inspirational, giving them an idea about the types of Western stories that they could tell that maybe take us a little bit outside
1: of the norm. I can totally see why your students were so taken with this movie because it really is something special. It's not just another replay of a familiar Western story that we've all seen a dozen times before. Instead, it's something quite unique. It's an ambitious character study that combines romance with adventure and melodrama and suspense, and it's filled with some truly gorgeous imagery. Now, for those who might not have seen the film yet, why don't you go ahead and offer just a brief summary of it? That's a good idea. So as you mentioned, the Battle of Little Joe was released to cinemas
2: in 1993, amid the last genuine revival of the big screen western. This was the period that saw the release of films like Dances with Wolves, Unforgiven, Tombstone, Bad Girls, Posse, and other movies. The film tells the story of Josephine Monahan, an Eastern society woman who's disowned by her family and decides to head west, where she reinvents herself in the most radical of ways, posing as a man. As we'll discuss, the film garnered its share of accolades back in 93, uh, but was also controversial. Mainstream reviewers criticized, sometimes antagonistically, the film's purported deviations from tradition, while commentators in the alternative press and academia
1: lamented that the movie was too traditional. You know, I feel like this movie really is just waiting to be rediscovered. I was encouraged to hear that Maggie owns the rights to the film now. It reverted back to her at one point, which is a very good thing, because this is a work that clearly means a lot to her, as well it should. And hopefully more people will be able to see it in the future. I know personally, I would love it if it's screened here in Los Angeles at the American Cinematheque, because I think it would be a huge hit with that crowd. Its 30th anniversary is coming up in just two years, so who knows? A live Q&A with Maggie and Susie Amos and Bo Hopkins after the screening would just be incredible. Especially if you and I were there to moderate it. Hey, we can hope. (laughs) Okay, then. I think it's time we say hello to Maggie Greenwald. Welcome, Maggie. It is a true pleasure to have you join us today on How the West Was Cast.
0: Oh, thank you. It's great to be here with both of you.
1: Uh, Ballad of Little Joe is a film I have
2: taught many times, uh, always with great success. So it's a real honor to
1: have you here today.
0: Oh, thank you very, very much. So before we discuss Ballad of
1: Little Joe, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your early introduction to the Western genre. You grew up watching them, I heard, and really loved the genre, right?
0: Yeah, uh, I. My father loved Westerns, and he was a fanatic, and I watched them with him, and um, it's just part of the fabric I grew up with. And um, later on, when I was a teenager, I went to watch samurai films with him. He was a Japanese film fanatic, you know, from early years after World War II, and my mother hated the films because they were so violent, so I would go with him. And uh, <laughs> so uh, a lot of my, um, I mean, I think I loved them. If I didn't love them, um, I wouldn't have continued to go with, with him. But uh, I always loved them.
1: A lot of people get introduced to the genre I hear from their fathers. It was my case as well, and we've had other guests on who said the same thing. It's sort of the gateway is the dad dads and westerns
0: yeah, I did have a brother too who loved them also but yeah i'm I'm the daughter who loved them as well.
1: What were some of the things about the genre that appealed to you?
0: a lot of con- things that actually um Andrew, you mentioned in your lecture yesterday i i uh I always. Uh, re- the landscape is so beautiful, and I always really connected with the central myth of the individ- rugged individualist, kind of finding their way and finding their path, and against the bad guys or convention. I uh, always, I mean, I found the films incredibly beautiful and exciting, and uh, and also did really connect with the you know the themes of. The mythic landscapes, the primal search for self and identity uh, in the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Were there key titles that stood out to you back then?
0: Well, you know, the the movies that made me the director I am today include The Searchers, The Wild Bunch, Once Upon a Time in the West. You know, The Magnificent Seven. You know, the the top ten right that that are really on everybody's list. Um, you know, there are. Others that are, I don't know as well, but that, you know, have been significant, but uh, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, oh beautiful, you know, yeah. which is a little later. Um, I mean, so you were
2: watching those at a time, though, when there was kind of a growing criticism of the Western and its purported ideologies. Did you did, did that factor into your thinking at all? Because it sounds like you were really able to see yourself. No,
0: it, it didn't because I think I was too young and yeah. I was not um I wasn't reading criticism. Right. You know, I was just going to the movies. That's a good thing. To be honest. Yeah, it was the best thing. And um, you know, when we talk about ballad, that sort of factors into um I was shocked at the kind of backlash against yeah. me when I made the film because it never occurred to me I wasn't supposed to right so so i I should have read all that criticism. <laughs> I think it would have warned me that I, would, I was on fit ice but right. um but I didn't uh no, i just um that's where I found myself,
2: you know. I mean, I will probably get into this later, but it's probably a good thing that you didn't because i I find little Joe to be like like a classic western. Thank which you. is, you know, using, you know, when the when the genre was at its peak, it was about telling different types of stories in the West. It wasn't about telling a certain story over and over and over again. Yeah. So, so I'm glad you didn't read that stuff because you ended up making a great, great Western.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: So when you began directing in the 80s, you were part of this new movement of indie women filmmakers like, Susan Seidelman and Penelope Spheres and Martha Coolidge, who were doing this incredible work. Um, Really exciting stuff. So what was that period of filmmaking like?
0: Um, I'm actually a number of years younger than them, Hmm. so I sort of um, came in on on their tail. You know, I moved to Los Angeles when I was 20, and that was from New York. I grew up in New York, and that was kind of where I realized that my dream was to be a director and kind of found myself, but then I um, there was no, there was no independent film scene at all in LA at that time. The only thing was a kind of dying exploitation scene and the emerging pornography scene were the closest thing to independent. And other than that, it was studio movies. So I, as I started writing and thinking about directing, I really knew I kind of needed to get back to New York. It was, it was Seidelman to some extent and Jarmusch. It was and some of the regional filmmaking that was coming out that you know that I I knew that was where I belonged. But I was living in Los Angeles, so it kind of took me about 10 years to find my way in mm-hmm. financing and and a script and to get back to New York, but I knew that that was really, you know, more my community.
1: Your first Creative instincts were in performance, I heard, but not necessarily filmmaking. So what was...
0: Well, that was naivete, and that was because nobody handed a 10-year-old girl a camera. Right. Right? That's really simple. So um, I, I mean, I have early memories of like trying to stage stories in my room and like trying to get my (laughs) friend to do it a certain way. Don't stand there. Go stand over there. but I. Never understood that as directing, and I always thought, you know, I just could see the actors, and I loved performance so much, and my whole family adored acting and performance in theater. So I I went to drama school. I really didn't have any idea, even though um, my father was, you know, passionate about movies, and I. Didn't connect the dots at all. And it took me until I was about 20, till I moved to Los Angeles actually to go, you know, for the light bulb to go off. So I studied drama and dance for 10 years and um, studied acting. But, you know, theater directing is so different. I didn't relate to that particularly at all. And I was never comfortable performing, Um, but just kind of stayed the course because I knew there was something there. Um, And in LA, you know, you just go there and it's in the water. You know, right. I think like a week after I got there, I, someone knocked on the door and said, my friend's casting extras in a movie. Do you want to be in the movie as an extra? I'm like, sure. So, you know, <laughs> so I, I think within a year, I really understood that that had really always been my dream, but I didn't have access to it as a girl. Mm
1: hmm. And then the post production audio work that you did on some huge movies like Trading Places and uh, Weird Science yeah. and those kind of films, Oh that crazy Michael Crichton movie uh, Runaway, yeah. which is so yeah, bizarre. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did that
0: that? Yeah, it grew out of uh, um, you know, as I began to uh, learn about filmmaking, I fell in love with editing, and I was like, okay, I need I need to earn a living somehow. I don't want to work production unless I'm the director. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, I love editing. If I I felt felt like if I could learn to edit that I could be a good director. And Mm -hmm. so I went to work at sun classic pictures, Andrew, that's for you.
2: Classy establishment,
0: (laughs) you know that, uh, I worked in their LA office as a runner and then, um, Became their vault librarian, and then I got a job as an assistant editor at Allen Landsberg Productions, and he was really at the forefront of kind of reality TV and a lot of that, like this TV show in search of. Oh, and yeah, I love I, that show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I became an, I started out as an assistant on that and then became a picture editor. And again, within a short time, I loved editing, but I pretty soon realized, okay, you pick a career, directing or editing. I just needed a gig to make some money, you know. So um, I had friends who had become successful sound editors, and they invited me to come be an assistant sound editor. So that became, you know, a really wonderful job that where I could earn a really, you know, nice living for a young adult and work on my stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you writing during that time period as well? Uh, yes, that's when I was learning to write. Right. And starting to write screenplays and, you know, finding my way, you know, coming up with what would be that independent film that I could direct eventually.
1: Mm mm-hmm. Now, after directing your first two features, Home Remedy and The Kill-Off, which I love, as a Jim Thompson fan, oh, my God, was that an exciting time period when everybody was making those movies?
0: Well, I was first. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I was working at a video store when it hit VHS, and I had it on my employee's pick shelf for a year. It was great. (laughs) I loved it.
0: I know, and it was never a corrected transfer either. It was just like a one light transfer. I was just so sad. But thank you so much. And no, I was first at that. I got in trouble for that too. That was my first foray into girls aren't supposed to do this. Mm, uh, but how I didn't. How dare you? But I did it anyway. Yeah, I love that. I still love that movie.
1: Then you decided that your third movie would be a western. You, you yeah, kind thought of I was ready. Up, yeah. I
0: was ready. Yeah. And
1: how did, But you didn't have a story yet for it. So how did that evolve? Like, how did Little Joe originate?
0: Well, I did what I used to do when I was looking for a story. I went to the library. (laughs) I just went to a shelf that was about history of the American West and started scanning, looking for something. And kind of at the bottom of the shelf was a book that was um, like Women of the West or something. And it was a collection of two or three page little things, little summaries of women in the West and, you know, included some pretty dazzling people, all of whom should have movies made about them, but haven't. And uh, and then there was just kind of a one page thing about little Joe Monahan and the newspaper, you know, and referenced in the newspaper article that was the obituary. And I just, I went, there's my movie, there's my story. Wow. I get a
1: vicarious thrill when I think about you turning the page and finding that Me too. Eureka moment. And
0: it really was. It was just like, a, you know, there it was, this obituary, and it was just, you know, like two or three paragraphs, and I just went, there's my movie. Wow. I mean, I did go to the library knowing I wanted to make a film about a, about a woman. Mm-hmm. You know, that's for sure, that I didn't have any interest in making a film about a man. I, I knew I wanted to make a story about a woman.
1: Although that newspaper article is what kind of gave you the idea, the actual story that you came up with is entirely your own. Correct. Although, although people often seem to, when I tell them I'm going to talk to you about this, they said, oh, she made that biopic on Little Joe and it's just not that.
0: And thank you for correcting them because no, it's not. I mean, there is, a, it's sort of ironic. I mean, my, the conceit of the whole film and my vision of it was that I was going to make a legend right? Like, you know, Wild Bill Hickok or Jesse James or, you know, Wyatt Earp, that that was kind of the whole idea for me. And it's very, but no, I made it all up, except for that there was a woman who named Josephine Monahan who did cross dress and live in a man in the West. And he, they, she was a society girl from Buffalo, New York, named Josephine Monahan, who did have a child out of wedlock. But everything else is completely fiction. So thank you for reminding them, because it really irks me a lot that people think it's a biopic.
2: I mean, in a way, though, you, you kind of succeeded because... Yes. I mean, we, we know that the, the, screen, <laughs> the screen, Wyatt Earp and Jesse James, what, what people think is the true story is not. It's based on films. So the yes. fact that you created this legend, based loosely in history, but now people think it is historical, you know, suggests yes. you, you actually succeeded.
0: <laughs> I did. I completely succeeded. But I, if the film was w- more well known and right. I was more well known, I would have been able to c- tell everybody right. <laughs> that I made it up. But I haven't gotten to do right. that. But. You know, I I recently watched uh, watched some of uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and in the beginning of it, it says uh, some of what follows is true. Yes. <laughs> and I was I'm like watching the movie. I'm going, nothing is true in this movie except for that there were two guys named Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and Ella or whatever her name was. The,
2: yeah, at a place. Yeah, at
0: a place. Right, but that thing at the you know the title at the beginning you know based on a real life. Uh, Actually, the distributor made me put that in uh, because he felt it would make it would pique people's interest.
2: Right. Well, people in Western certainly like this discourse of history. They like to think that, oh, this is telling me how it really happened. Whereas you you clearly absorbed a lot from those films you watched as a child when it came to myth making.
0: Yeah, I did. I learned good. (laughs)
1: Now since I know you really appreciate the work of Sam Peckinpah is there any chance that the film's title was a uh, ode to uh, Cable Hope
0: Yes it was, and thank you.
1: Beautiful, I love it.
0: You get, you're gonna make me cry. You're the only person on earth who ever knew that. Well,
1: now it's become commonplace. Uh, there was always Cable Hoag, and there was your movie, and now we get Buster Scruggs and Lefty Brown, The Ballad of, The Ballad of, um, but it fits this film so much better. Yeah,
0: yeah. It was my my one of my homages to Sam. And casting Bo Hopkins. Oh uh, well, yeah, we're going go to get to him. Ahead.
1: He's uh, we could do an entire show on Bo Hopkins. He's he, we could. I mean, so much more than Sam Peckinpah has been in so many great westerns. So, can you talk a little bit about the script writing process on this project? How yeah. long did it take, and what kind of research was involved?
0: To be honest, it was one of those. I haven't had too many of those. I don't think anybody gets too many of those. It was just one of those sort of magic ones that um, I wrote the first draft in about three weeks. Oh my God. It was a very crude first draft. It was, um, you know, it was only like 80 pages or something. But I wrote surrounded by photographs. I still actually buy a lot of books and do a lot of visual research as I'm writing. You know, I crave the images of, you know, kind of finding the world that I'm I'm building and want to create. So a lot of it was inspired by photographs. And so whenever I got to a spot that I needed an idea, I'd pick up the photograph, I'd pick up the books and start looking at the photographs. So a lot of it, I mean, really all of it is inspired by photographs.
1: That makes so much sense when, when you see like, uh, for instance, that, Image that's burned in my head of that mute prostitute being brought in on the donkey, um, and the way she's dressed that looks like something that must have been,
0: like. Well, not on the donkey that, that I made up, but there was, oh, an, wow. it, there was an image of, uh, of a daguerreotype of, I guess of a prostitute or early porn of a, of a woman with that long hair, like, right. um, Olinda, like we gave Olinda to Turo, um, that, you know, there was that image. And then I kind of brought, so it was just her. Mm -hmm. And I, I brought her onto the llama into the troop that, you know, with the, um, you know, the man who brings her and the pimp who brings her around. So the the inspiration for that was the image, just the image of the woman from an early sex card, I guess. So um, what
1: went into the decision to shoot in Montana and, and set the story in Montana?
0: I knew pretty much that I wanted, I really wanted to make um, a cool weather Western. I was more inspired visually by McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I felt that the story, that's kind of where I was seeing the story. I didn't feel like it was an Arizona or, you know, or New Mexico kind of desert story. I had an image that was very inspirational that was over a friend's desk, a photograph of three women on mules outside of a teeny tiny brand new built town that was at the foot of a mountain. And that there's the mountain and then the you know, this tiny row of brand new built structures that were the town and then three women on the outskirts and I have that image of the teeny of you know
1: the scale of it, yeah.
0: Scale of the you know, the tiny human endeavor next to the vast landscapes. Um and then we just started scouting in Montana and we just arrived in this place and it was just exquisite it was perfect and we i mean we had a location we had a scout plan that was supposed to you know start in Montana and then go all over in, and including to Arizona and we just got to Montana to this town called Red Lodge and near the Bear Tooth Pass and just was like this is it
1: it's it's breathtaking that that location <laughs> yeah. when of Mary's wedding that location that takes place. I mean, it really is heart stopping when you Thank see it. the the clouds. Yeah. I, I so appreciate the skies in this movie. Skies are such a, a key factor in making great westerns. I think it's why Shimino's mm-hmm. Heaven's Gate works so beautifully because he yeah. took the time, maybe more time. That's than a needed. movie
0: I love. Also, yeah, visually, we're gonna get to yeah. that. It's it's a yeah, fantastic
1: yeah. film, and you. That's on you, my you, list. Good, good one. Yeah. So so yeah, that location of the wedding and and of the actual Ruby City town is just, it's flawless.
0: Thank you.
2: And, and Matt and I are also big fans of you know, the, the rare Westerns that actually have a part that takes place in the winter. And I always find that winter Westerns or even Westerns that are set not in Arizona, you actually get a sense of the, the changing of the seasons and the kind of s- cyclicality. You get a sense of, I guess, time. Did, did you know that you wanted that to be a part of, the, the movie No, or did but that just, that's just a happy accident. It's a happy
0: accident. I mean, I, yeah. we got there, you know, we said we started prepping and it snowed on labor day <laughs> and, and as it does in the West, in the mountains, right. You know, it snows and then it, it snows and then it's summer in the afternoon. Yeah. And my producer came to me frantically and said, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are we going to do if it's, if the whole movie's in snow And I just said, don't worry, it won't be. And I said, whatever it is. I mean, that's kind of, I've always just, I've had good weather karma with my movies. And I think it's because I surrender to the weather. Mm. You know, you can't fight the weather, and particularly in the mountains. So, um, But we were lucky. After that snow melted, we had exquisite Indian summer for, um, half the shoot. And then the, you know, it all really went with the look of the movie and we weren't into like real cold winter. We finished in the middle of November and we, so we weren't into real bleak winter and until the end of the shoot, which you can kind of see, you know, when she rides off to fight the, the bad guys, you know?
1: Yeah. Where were you living? Like where, uh, where's the crew stage? Do you have to bring all this equipment in every day or do you live right there?
0: There we stayed in motels. There was oh. Red Lodge is a is a I ski resort. I got it. So there were motels and we were, you know, preseason. And Montana was not pop, that popular then. This was kind of before it really came into vogue. I mean this is a
2: this is around the time of A River Runs Through It, but I think I it think was a right before. after.
0: It was right after right. and okay. River Runs Through it had shot there the year before.
2: Yeah, so that was the film that really uh, if you were to ask Montana locals, yeah. they would say that that film should have been called "A Tourist Runs Through It" yeah. because that's what happened after that movie that's came out. That's exactly
0: right, and they and they shot in the same area the year before.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in addition to these gorgeous locations that you picked, you also filled the film with these amazing production design in those locations. Um can you talk a little bit about working with your production designer? The the Ruby City mining camp just feels so authentic and we get to see it grow throughout the film, which is such a treat.
0: Well, that's Mark yeah. Mark Friedberg who is now one of the greatest American production designers and this was his second movie. Amazing. And you know, I interviewed wonderful production designers, all of whom could have done a great job. And I just, you know, I met Mark and he had, I think, done one movie before that kind of small movie, contemporary college dorm thing. But there was just something about Mark. I just knew he was the guy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, Mark, I think, agrees that ballad stands with the best of his work, over the years,
1: it seems so risky. Here's your first Western, and you're working with a, a very new production designer. I would I would have thought somebody would want to surround themselves with people who have done built Western towns before, but it it, it didn't work out that way.
0: I'm not that sensible. <laughs> <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> I mean, it, to be honest, you know, you have a. I, I was interested in the vision and the sensibility. You know, I had really good producers, so I trusted that he would have. The support that he needed, that I could go with the vision.
2: I mean, to Matt's point, there are there are so many sort of striking moments where it is the production design that really emphasizes. I mean, to to me, the most one of the most memorable moments is when, you know, all of a sudden, uh, I believe it's the bank is there, just fully formed amid amid the tent city, and it's red against the white. It's that's just such a striking moment that. Just symbolizes everything that's happening at that moment in the movie. It's yeah. such a, a just a, a wonderful image. Yeah.
0: Well, that was also designed with the shot in mind. I wanted because that's a time transition. That's like ten, yeah. ten years later transition, and so I wanted the transition to come with. Say, go to the town, and they may look the same, but you go around the corner, and there's the
1: there it is. There's money. Progress. There's money right yeah even even seeing the way that the lettering of the cattle com uh, of the cattle company is written up there and carved in stone it's this is not going to be leaving this is not just a wooden shack or a tent this is permanent uh, so it's really beautiful also the saloon the way we see the that saloon from the crappy early scary saloon that she first walks into and then when they announce her death we see um it's become a legitimate saloon and and yet the same locals are just chilling out in the background. It's, It's such a wonderful image. Thank you. Thanks. So the movie also includes a lot of Animals. We've got this amazing number of livestock here, horses, those beautiful oxen, those shaggy-haired oxen, which are, are great with those massive horns. There's even a wolf sort of in there somewhere, too. Plenty of sheep. The dog. Uh, uh, oh, that, was the wolf a dog? Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it fooled me. Um, amazing performance. So um,
0: what was Sound that, effects that, like? will really, you know... <laughs> <laughs> But don't tell him that we, we dubbed his yell)
1: <laughs> So working with those animals, what was that like for you?
0: Well, uh, I mean, we had really good trainers. Yeah. you know, And mean, you, you, you know from the work that I'm very interested in the texture and the landscape and the details of life, like the animals and the homemade quality of structures, all of that kind of stuff so you know it was part of it's part of the world so, you know we just had we had really good good animal Where
1: yeah where do you even get those massive oxen like how, how do they show I don't up know one day?
0: where they came from i think they
1: oh it's montana it's montana oh,
0: really? i don't think they were probably that far away <laughs> you
1: know? and when you're writing that in the script are you thinking ahead of time this won't be a problem or are you just pouring it out
0: no you can't think like that you won't write anything
1: Did you, I mean, on the subject of animals, did you,
2: at what point did you know you wanted it to be about sheep herders? Because there's kind of a, there's a minor tradition of Westerns about sheep and and sheep kind of being lesser than cattle, like Ballad of Josie and so on.
0: I mean, that's why it was, you know, starting out with what's easy and I guess, you know, was easier and more manageable was sheep, you know, raising cattle was a bigger deal and came with money from the East.
1: They're also much funnier right. to watch. They're also there. It's some adorable. of those
0: scenes. The scenes where I she's, fell in love with them. I was.
1: She's wrangling when them. When she's know, first figuring out how him. to work with them, and they're so stupid, and they've got their heads caught in things, it's hilarious. It's great. Yeah. The cows are kind of boring that way, so I think this was the way to go. Good, thank you. Um. So the cast, of course, in this movie is just off the hook. Every role is filled by people who would go on to have these amazing careers. And starting, of course, with Susie Amos, who's brilliant in the title role. How did she come to your attention and and what was she like to work with?
0: Well, she was extraordinary to work with. Um, I I, I mean, you know, I think this is where the 10 years of my acting training and growing up in, Mm. you know, watching New York theater come into as well as movies, you know. You know, at that time, there was really, like, hardly any, there was no one who was, like, bankable who would have really been good for the part. So we were looking at relative newcomers and just, you know, didn't, had really tons and tons of auditions in Los Angeles and New York, and nobody felt right. It just didn't. You know, there were women who came in dressed as cowgirls for their auditions, and, you know, Susie walked in and, She just arrived from Paris, and she had a pink bow in her hair, and she just she was just amazing. And you know, I just felt like she was my Joe. You know, was
2: there was there a certain quality that you were looking like? Were you were you looking? It, as, as somebody who was, you know, passable as a man or a certain androgyny, or was there a, or it's just kind of ineffable? I
0: think the androgyny, I mean, there were women I auditioned who were very good, but who were just so, and it's funny because Susie is very feminine, but, yes. but she's also androgynous. So there were women mm-hmm. who auditioned who just, I just knew would never be believable. And even, you know, even going with the, the, the conceit of that back in those days, you didn't have to do much except wear the clothes of the other gender to be misidentified, you know, So, but I wanted Joe to be passable as a, you know, young man. I think the, you know, her and her talent, her androgyny and her beauty. And she's also very, you know, she can be very plain also.
1: Did you work with her on the voice to get that lower oh, yeah. tone voice? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Of course, worked. she worked on that very, very hard. That was very hard for her.
1: Did she already know how to ride? Because she seems she really sure good. Did. Yeah, she's, she sure she's did. great.
0: She looked great on a horse. Yeah, yeah when
1: she's following um, Bo Hopkins uh, crossing rivers and things, she just looks like she owns that horse. <laughs> it's pretty good.
0: Yeah, she, no, she grew up in Oklahoma. She's an experienced rider.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Um, the scene where she cuts her hair – is, is that a wig she's cutting or oh, wow. So that's why, yeah, it, it scares me. Every time I watch that moment, I, I flash to um Ridley Scott making GI Jane when he had to have Demi Moore shave her head and he had like five cameras rolling to make sure it captured <laughs> that moment and there wasn't a problem. What was that like that day?
0: Susie has the most beautiful strawberry blonde hair. And at that time it was down to her waist. Wow, amazing. <laughs> and um, I knew, you know, I, I just didn't feel like a wig was the right way to go with, with this movie, with this performance, you know, and, um, she was like, fine, I'll cut my hair. No problem. <laughs> so she, that's all Susie cutting her own hair.
1: I love the scar, the the scar and the haircut t- together really really help sell that. That and and the hat. I'll, I'll talk about the hat later because I'm obsessed with western hats. But that's my last question. Um.
0: <laughs> well, that was the that was the costume designer came up with the right hat. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I'll
0: jump well, into also, it in that because also you know case. one of the one of the challenges is like how, you know with with a role like this is how do you make the person not look goofy? Right. Right, yeah. how do you make them look believable? What What are the right, you know, what are the right clothes? And uh, our costume designer did a fantastic job. Yeah,
1: the hat really worked because it's got that extremely wide brim that kind of keeps her in shadow all the time. Like she can use it and tilt her head down and you can't see anything. But it's also got this Once really, upon a
0: time in the West.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> like you have to – Exactly. It psychs you out. Yeah. But it also has a really short crown that makes her look sort of yeah. diminutive in a way. Well, it's it, –
0: it looks in proportion.
1: Right. Right. That, if she had sure like is. a
0: big crown, she'd look goofy. Yeah.
1: You know, Yeah.
0: I thought so.
1: One of the questions I always have for filmmakers of Westerns is what happens to that hat? Like, does that just go back to <laughs> costumes or do, do you have it? Does she have Olive's,
0: it? Okay. It's a, it's a poignant question. Um, I saved all of Little Joe's wardrobe and because um, oh. it was all custom made. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, including, including her boots. Were custom, the hat was custom made, and I've been schlepping it around for, for these twenty, however many years, and I just and I just moved out of a really big house where um, uh, two years ago where I was storing it, and it was like, I can't keep carrying this around, so I donated it. I gave it to the costume designer Ann Roth. Oh wow! Who Great. has? A warehouse here. Her daughter lives in the same town I do in New Jersey and we got connected and her, I gave all the wardrobe to her warehouse, which she built and which is a cooperative with other costume designers. So, Amazing.
1: What a gift. Wow. That's really a, a precious, precious and, artifact there. And it'll be well, yeah. well cared for, I imagine.
0: Well, um, hopefully it'll be used. I don't, I don't know, you know, I, well, we
1: can I get it on display in a museum someday. I don't
0: probably. know. You know, I, I mean, I don't think it's going in a museum, Andrew. But, uh, oh, the museum I might have something to say about that. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, at least it's with, with wardrobe and it will be well cared for instead of in my garage.
1: Great. So we've mentioned Bo Hopkins several times already, and he really is a force of nature in this movie. Um, so what was it like to direct somebody who's, been in so many westerns so many some of the best movies ever made
0: he was a dream he really felt like he felt that this part was a huge opportunity he loved the material and he was a dream he's just he's a, he's a consummate actor he's superb his as you know from his work his range is enormous i don't know if you saw him in the few minutes he's in Hill, hillbilly elegy
1: Oh, I haven't seen it yet. No, oh, he's in that yeah. now. Now I'll he definitely a, watch it.
0: He's a very, he is a small, a small part. part, but every minute he's on screen is just, but he's, ama- he's amazing.
2: I'm a big fan of you know, Westerns of the seventies and he's in, you know, he's in so many of them, you know, not, not only um, the wild bunch, but Monty Walsh Call Pepper cattle company, man who loved cat dancing um, posse. So, so to see him, you know, get, get a full role, you know, to, to go from these small parts that kind of just really hint at this immense talent, to to see him as a, a fully fleshed character with, with such you know complexity, it it really, I mean, it's it's like the role of a lifetime in some ways right. for him, at least, I, at least in terms of that. I
0: think he felt he character. felt it was.
2: I mean, how I guess you know how how cognizant were you of that that kind of Western. Baggage is the wrong word, but his background. That's why I cast
0: him. I cast him because of the opening scene in The Wild Bunch. Because of the bank.
2: Oh, he's marching them around the bank.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, I cast him because he was wonderful, you know, but it was because of his baggage that I cast him.
2: I mean, we have lots of conversations about these, you know, sort of, you know, more minor character actors who appeared in many westerns who. You know, we'd, we would just love to have seen them in a, in a leading role. You know, Matt's a big fan of Richard Jekyll. Mm,
0: and and this is fabulous. this is the
2: case. I mean, this is the case where it happened, where he he actually got to to really showcase his talent in a western, and it just
1: it couldn't be a more you know beautiful performance
0: i would agree with you his costumes
1: as well that massive coat he wears that kind of he's the already a, such a big guy and it just fills him out he fills a doorway when he walks in it's it's really beautiful he's also brings that he was always such a menacing character in so many ways in in early films. And I was kind of scared of him the first time I saw him. And he has that at the beginning of Little Joe in that bar scene. He's, you don't know if this is setting up to be the villain. He seems hair trigger violent at any point. Then we slowly fall in love with him and find him kind of charming. But we see that that never goes away because a few scenes later, he's threatening to cut the throat of of Tin Man. So he he really is a, a full person.
2: The I mean, the moment where Joe, you know, l- Joe learns and we learn that he has a wife. Like, there's this moment where you're like, oh, my goodness, there's this entire life beyond the kind of the archetypal character that we encounter in a conventional scenario. And and our response is Joe's response in that moment. Like, oh, wait a minute. There's there's more to this. Right, guy but,
0: You know, if you go back and look at all the movies that you love and think about the men like that in those movies. I mean, most of them had a wife. Right? And ten exactly. Ten kids at home. <laughs> exactly right? that, which have been left out of the story right but uh they're you know they did
1: his final moments when he's so be- feels so betrayed by this by his one of his best friends and then that moment when he finds the photo it's just such a beautiful moment when you're filming that and you're watching him do that it's all silent too he's just raging at the room like uh, Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, knocking things around.
0: Yeah, What's going I mean, through
1: your mind when you're you're seeing that? Oh,
0: happen? it was just you know it was one take and and it was kind of it was his last scene and um you know and it was just like he he said I really I'm so angry I want to break stuff and I said you can break stuff but we have no du- we have no seconds we have no doubles so just know it's one take but I'm fine with you doing what you what you want to do. Yeah, I think he's I think his performance is exquisite and I and the complexity of it of being that kind of, you know, that man who we see often very one-dimensionally in movies, he captured the one-dimensionality in a complex character. Right. You know, yeah, really beautifully.
1: And- now, uh, another actor who of course has a strong connection to the western is René Auberchenois, who Everybody knows from McCabe and Mrs. Miller. He's in that small, colorful role at the beginning of the film. It was great to start off with him. him. Now, when you have him in the film, do you get stories from him about shooting McCabe, or is he
0: only shot for one day?
1: Oh, really? So he was just in and
0: out. He was very busy. He was doing. It was the beginning of uh, Deep Space Nine. Yeah. It was Star Trek very, very... Was, he had just been cast in Star Trek. It was just starting, and, and he was like, you know, that's my annuity. <laughs> 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 and uh, which I'm sure it was.
1: Then of course there's Sir Ian McKellen, who was quite new to American audiences at the time. How did he come to your attention?
0: Um, he uh, it's only the second his second movie actually, um, and his first American movie. He I don't know if you remember back then he was touring the United States in a production of Richard the Third that was being hailed as one of the great performances, and he had also just come out all right uh, as gay and he'd been knighted. So there was kind of a small storm around him, and um, and actually his agent contacted our producer and said, "What do you think about Sir Ian McKellen to play Percy?" Was not my idea, but it was a brilliant idea.
1: Did you adjust the role for to to fit him? Well, you,
0: we we talked about it. I mean, you know, the role. There were you know the conversation when we met. You know, he said, how are you going to get me into my role? And I said, well, what if the character is someone who is gay but unaware of that and all those feelings and can't live that way? And he became instantly interested. And mm-hmm. um, But it wasn't so much I didn't direct it that way. His presence in, brought that to the role. Oh,
1: that moment when he teaches her how to smoke a uh, pipe is my favorite moment, maybe in the movie, when
0: he... How to be a man.
1: Yeah, and that quiet moment where he says, now close your eyes, hold it in, and think about your future. What a beautiful line. I mean, that's just such a an exquisite moment, and you hold on it, and the lighting, the candlelight, I think that scene is lit with candle. It is. I mean, uh, I, I don't know what to say. Be. And
0: then there's Declan Quinn.
1: Right. Shot, um mean. Had he already been making films or shooting films? before? have shot The Kill-Off. Oh, okay, right.
0: That was his first American film. He also was new. He'd made a film. I think he'd shot one feature in Ireland. He'd come out of music videos.
1: His work with natural lighting is just gorgeous. That and the candlelight scenes are, are just perfect. Yeah. In in the cast, we also have David Chung as Tin Man Wong, who's really terrific in this movie. I, I imagine that might've been a difficult role to cast.
0: It was almost impossible at the time. There were so few working Asian American actors, so few. And we did a really broad call, just kind of looking all over the place. And we were coming up empty. And um, I think it was not long before we left for for location, I was sitting in the producer's office and this fax came in on the fax machine stuttering in on the fax machine with his 8x10 and I'm looking at it coming in upside down you know and I went that's him <laughs> <laughs> Yeah he was he really did a beautiful job
1: He really brings a lot of heart to that film and, re- and
0: and and really you know I mean also as an actor just he had actually stopped acting because there were no good roles he stopped after what's the Alex Cox film he was in? Um, oh, Repo Man. Yeah, that's where David had been in that, and he there were just no good parts. He'd quit acting, and I think his agent had heard about the movie finally and sent that, or former agent.
1: I can I can see where that would be a difficult uh, decision to make on his part. Um, I just literally th- this wasn't planned. Last night I was watching Chuck Norris's Missing in Action Two from 1985. This. Uh, crazy Vietnam action film. I want to ask you why. (laughs) I I don't know. I go off on some weird rabbit holes and boom, there's David Chung as the sadistic prison guard at a POW camp. And yet he stole every scene he was in. I mean, he was the villain you love to hate in this crazy bizarro movie. Well, and like, I mean, like the, the Frank Badger character, this is another one of those sort of
2: archetypal, one-dimensional characters even more marginalized in most westerns who you actually give screen time to and we we see this
0: that's the whole premise is you know who you know when i was writing and i knew i wanted jo to fall in love her arc is that by bearing a disguise she gets to become her true self yeah. by having an outward disguise so it's like who else who is a man who's invisible in the western landscape there you go <sighs>
2: Yeah, immigrant laborers.
0: <laughs> yeah, the immigrant laborer are totally invisible. So they're yeah. both, that's how they get a, you know, that's the whole premise. That's how they escape detection. They're invisible.
1: So one of my favorite elements in the film is the score by David Mansfield. And as a lifelong Michael Cimino fan, I have to confess I am obsessed with David's music. In fact, do you have your props there, I'll tell Matt? It. Oh, there they there they are.
0: I'll tell him
1: on vinyl right here. I'm oh,
0: sorry, he's not home. You know, he's my husband, right?
1: Yeah. Um, not home, but. <laughs> So, so, you met on this film. Um, yeah.
0: And I hired him because of the Heaven's Gate score. Yeah, of course. It's right. one of
1: the most beautiful scores of all time. It's, I it's, agree with you. It's a, a masterpiece, I, really.
0: I agree completely.
1: So, d- do you work with somebody that talented on what you actually want, or did you just say, give me what you're good at? Like,
0: no, we worked very closely, actually. Um, that's how we got the opportunity to fall in love as we were working together. Um, no, because it was, I wasn't that experienced, you know, I, I needed to work with him and he needed to work with me. It wasn't as exquisite as, um, heaven's gate is it's, it's pretty much monothematic, mm-hmm. right? Most of the score is derived from the folk song, the the Slavic folk song that's used. And, um, You know, what David spins with it is incredible. You know, I knew I wanted him to use all acoustic instruments, and I didn't want orchestra. I wanted to keep the scale of the score very intimate. No, we worked very closely together, actually.
1: Now, he acts in Heaven's Gate as well. Was there any chance of getting him uh, to act in your film as well?
0: There was no interest in getting him to act in that film.
1: wasn't ready to lace him up again. You didn't want to have him roller skate through the (laughs) scene? I don't
0: think so. I don't think so. And really, who could top that? We didn't have the but Our our whole budget would have been that skating (laughs) rink.
1: So another thing that the film has in common with Heaven's Gate is that it addresses the immigrant experience in America during the 1800s. So at what point in the script writing process did you know you wanted to include that as a subplot in the movie?
0: Again, it evolved as I was writing from images of Russian immigrants or Slavic immigrants that I found. I was like, oh, yeah.
1: It's such an unexpected moment when it comes in, and yet it makes perfect sense with another group of outsiders coming into this area. I particularly love that moment where... Joe shares the orange with the family. I watched it with my girlfriend the other night and the orange reminded her of little house on the prairie where mm-hmm. in those books, the family would get an orange for Christmas every year. That was the, oh, it I didn't was, remember that. yeah, it was in their It was in their stockings and it became like uh, this bonding moment with the family, this one little treat. So it, it it's such a, a charming moment in your movie. Another thing I'm curious about is the medical treatment that Ruth gives to Tin Man, where did that come from? Is this based on actual folk
0: remedies? Or? It's all real. St- based everything is based on real stuff, you
2: know. Right down to the drinking of the kerosene, which is just one of the. It's a hard. I even find it hard to watch, having seen the movie, you know, a dozen mm-hmm. times.
0: Yeah, they used to give it to babies too. Oh no.
2: <sighs> yeah, but yeah, all all the herbs and the poultices and the tar. Yeah, I it I was. Mean,
0: it's all from uh, from books on on folk remedies, right.
2: But that's um, the kind of, you know, what, what I love about that scene is how in so many Westerns there are, you know, they're like interesting jars on shelves in stores. And here we actually
0: see them opening the jars. And well, that's applying. what comes of having women in the store, you see, because right. men don't open the jars, women <laughs> open the jars. You know, that's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or did in the West, you know, yeah. right? We filled the jars and then we opened the jars. <laughs>
1: So uh, getting back just briefly to Declan Quinn, when you were working out how you wanted the film to look, did you use other Westerns as reference points? Did you watch things together? Yeah, we
0: did. I mean, the main references were McCabe and Mrs. Miller, um, Mm -hmm. Heaven's Gate. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a film that the title, fabulous regional indie film, that the title, you, you two will probably know the film I'm talking about. It was based on a true story. Rip Torn was in it. He's phenomenal. He plays this rancher out in the West who sends for this woman to come and be his wife.
2: Oh, um, Heartland.
0: Thank you. Heartland, yes. right? Yes, exactly. Heartland. Right.
2: Has um, Conchetta F- Farrell. Farrell. Farrell.
0: Farrell, right. Farrell. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and Rip Torn. And yeah. um, I don't, who's the director?
2: Uh, Richard Pierce.
0: Oh, okay. So there you go. Um, at, but it's based on her, the, the female characters, actual diaries of being a mail order bride and then going, and there's some incredible images in there, particularly really, really, really wide shots to really, um, that really kind of take you into the loneliness and isolation of, of being in this vast country. And
2: um, You know, at, at the same time you did, So the film isn't shot, though, in, you know, like two, three, five. So can you talk a little bit about
0: Yeah, Too big? Yeah, I thought that would be too big.
2: Right. So too, too epic for an intimate film like this?
0: Yeah. I've, you know, kind of one of my philosophies is I've always had to work within a very modest budget. And I think it's really important to not uh, to make that so that it doesn't crush you. (laughs) Right. You know, that that's something that also affects the casting that I cast, you know, wonderful character actors and, you know, don't cast stars who would, you know, the scale suddenly tilts. Um, but we talked about it and I, you know, I just felt it would, it would diminish the movie rather than creating a feeling of uh, the isolation and the vastness. I felt that it would diminish the movie.
2: Yeah. I think, I, I think, People talk a lot about widescreen with the Western, but they sometimes forget that, you know, Fist Division, for example, you know, wasn't 235. The Searchers isn't 235. No. It's it's about the aspect ratio of yeah. the
0: of Little Joe. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and 133 kind of wasn't in style then anymore, yeah. really. It wasn't bright, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, I loved what you said about Meek's cutoff and, you know, Kelly's use of the bonnets. I wish she had made that. I mean, it's an exquisite. Visually exquisite film. I wish she had shared with us that that was where where it comes It's come subtle,
1: from, yeah.
0: Rather than I'm not that subtle, <laughs> yeah. yeah. As, <laughs> we know, as we know,
1: so, you know, you um, know. So compared to other westerns of the early '90s like Unforgiven and Tombstone and Young Guns, there's not a lot of overt gunplay in the film, which makes the scene where Joe actually kills those two cattle. Company killers seems so much more powerful. The look of anguish on her face after she shoots that last one, and the tears running down—it's really striking. Was that something you wanted deliberately to keep so small there?
0: Yeah, because because you know that's the at the time I felt that that sort of the journey is if you like if you're gonna take the privilege of being a man in your disguise, the moment's going to come where you have to pay the price, which is to take a life in in kind of the lore of the western right that's the, the law of the west so I, I felt that 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 was her arc and if i mean it was not a story for gunplay you know it's it's right. you yeah. know it's not a shoot 'em up
2: i mean it's, it's certainly in, in a lot of westerns in general but around that time there's a lot of characters talking about violence and uh, you know the effect it has on people but we don't actually really see it affect characters in the way that you see Joe in that moment, recognize the gravity of taking a life.
0: Remember Joe came out like five minutes before Tarantino burst on the scene with, you know, ears being cut off and the whole, you know, the descent into ultra violence, ultra gratuitous violence. And so tombstone has, you know, there's a lot of like posturing and stuff and, and and, and unforgiven is, is, you know, pretty harsh. Um, But you know, I was telling a different kind of story. I heard when you actually put the film together that the initial
1: cut was like...
0: It was 10 minutes longer. Yeah, it was 10 minutes longer, and hmm. the current cut is much better, mm-hmm. to be honest. I mean, one of the things that I... Because I write and direct, I think one of the biggest challenges always is what do you need in the script that you don't need in the movie? Mm-hmm. Right. There's, there's a lot of material. So, I mean, i just to give you an idea, you know, you get in the editing room and these scenes are really wonderful, but then the film is meandering really. And, you know, it was sort of unfortunate that it got finished at the two hours and 10 minutes and then shown to people. And then we went back, but I don't feel like anything was cut that was, that I regret, you know, there was, for instance, a scene with the Russian family where the mother, you know, has one more baby and just and sort of flips out and tries to kill the baby. Mm. Oh. You know, so there was stuff that just didn't relate anymore to the story of Joe's journey. You know, mm. it was sufficient to come back, you know, 10 years later and there's multiple grave markers right you know? yeah like that told the story i didn't need the scene yeah i mean those transition
2: that. those transitions are so are so we talked about one before with the you know the cattle company just so judicious and impactful that just in those those images you you tell the whole 10 years
0: you know i see a lot of films now that i feel are not finished being cut you know i'm sure you would agree you know
2: that absolutely um,
0: and some of that I think just comes from from digital editing in the haste of schedules that there's no gestation time right. you know as well as kind of different sensibility.
2: well, you have, to, you have so much more footage to work with now too. I mean just you know ten, twenty, thirty times as much as you might have had right. two decades ago right, right. Um, so. you can't you can't help but that can't help but affect the the right. the pacing the decisions.
1: You know, as beautiful as the movie is, the marketing campaign from Fineline Features didn't really do anybody any services. Um, What happened there? Can you tell me? Do you know?
0: Well, yeah, I can tell you. I mean, Ira Deutschman is still a friend. Um, He was the head of Fineline at the time. He and the head of marketing, I felt really misunderstood. The potential market of the film, they thought the potential market was people who go see westerns, and I assure you that me and the producers went in and spoke to them after they cut the trailer that looked, you know, because the film, if you're you're going to try and market it as a conventional western, it's going to utterly fail because that's not what it is. It's not a shoot 'em up. It's ridiculous. So, you know, unfortunately they didn't get that. They felt that this was the way to market it. And they there was nothing we could do about it. I think it was very, very unfortunate. And I, and I think it was terrible under, misunderstanding. And I remember actually, Susie and I went down to do interviews for a radio show in Washington, D.C. And it was a call-in show. And I was talking about the film. And this woman called in and said, I was at the I went to the movies last night and then saw a trailer for your movie. She said, I'm listening to you now and I want to run out right now and go see your movie. But I was in the theater last night and I saw a trailer for it. And I was like, I'm never going to go see that film. That was terrible. Oh no. Wow. Wow. that's She said, yeah. you know, it just like as a woman, it there was the trailer was not cut to appeal to women. Right. It was cut as a, you know cowboy movie for for men so it was you know very misunderstood unfortunately by very smart people
1: so the film rightfully earned a stellar review from the New York Times i read it again last night and it's really a glowing it's a love letter um and yet several other critics far too many seemed unusually angry at this movie when it came out from your perspective can you talk about what that was all about
0: well i mean we understand it now as fragile masculinity but But, but, you know, this 27 years later, we have language for that, you know. No, I was stunned, actually, because the film is actually, it's such a gentle film. And is so, I think the ways it portrays men who live among men are accurate or truthful and not, you know. But I think because the film was made by a woman, I mean, men portray each other much more savagely than I portray them. So... Uh, no, I, I was shocked and very disappointed. You know, I think it was it was a very important awakening for me as a filmmaker to really understand how gendered representation is and how important who is behind the camera is.
2: I, I, mean, I find the response kind of perplexing in the sense that there. There were, you know, to Matthew's point, sort of all these sort of mainstream critics who were basically criticizing the film for not being more kind of conventional, like Dances with Wolves, like Unforgiven. But then at the same time, there were also kind of critics in academia or in alternative presses, so you know, uh, B. Ruby Rich's article, who were also sort of criticizing it for being too traditional. Like, Well, like
0: she, was, she was very... Not, not being
2: about lesbian desire was her criticism.
0: I remember her review and I just, again, you know, we can have a different conversation in 2021. Like we, the film's about gender. It was never about sexuality, but I understand today why, you know, someone representing the queer press would be angry that I'd co-opted a story that they would like to tell from their perspective. Like, I understand that. Now, but the film's not about sexuality; it's about gender.
2: It's just remarkable to me how how so many people were just projecting onto the film what they wanted it to be, and there's this kind of just—I don't know if it's an inability or unwillingness to deal with the film as a feminist western,
0: or just as a western. I mean, I don't—I'm proud of the label feminist, and that film labeled me a feminist director and had you know very profound uh, repercussions for the rest of my career. Um, mm. anyway, that's a, a different, that's a different podcast.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, you know, and I've, I've seen a lot of Westerns and I, I'm pretty critical of, of people who talk about Westerns who haven't seen a lot of Westerns and you've seen a lot of Westerns. And, you know, to me, you, you did make a Western because when the Western was at its peak, it wasn't about telling the same story. It was, it was about incorporating stories from other genres and telling them in the West. And when I watched Battle of Little I think of it as, as kind of a, a you know, a kind of a passing story. So, you know, once upon a time we told stories about African-Americans who passed as white or Jews who passed as Gentiles, and you could tell those stories in Westerns. And and here was a kind of a passing narrative of a woman passing as a man, and it was in the West. And that's that's what the Western was. It was telling many stories in the West. And I think that what's unfortunate about the time that this came out is people because of the other films, had been conditioned and hadn't seen Westerns for a long time into thinking the Western is this one extremely narrow thing, this one extremely narrow set of concerns.
0: I think that that it also relates in a very big way to privileged male ownership of genre, of voices. You know, it's because I did experience a similar thing with The Kill-Off, actually. You know, and so... My perspective always it is defined as a feminist per perspective. But to me, it's just my human perspective is women were there. Why wouldn't we have stories?
2: Has there ever been any talk now about, you know, revisiting it for an anniversary screening or event or anything like that? The good news like and that? the
0: bad news is that the rights have reverted to me. I own the film. Oh,
2: you do. OK.
0: But there's no digital transfer of it.
1: Oh, right. And so
0: there's the money money required for all of that but if you know of a distributor streaming company that would be interested i own it wow okay i've gotten more requests to talk about it or you know it's it's bubbling right there you know right now
2: and i i would also say that i've shown this film to, to many students now and i can tell you that it has inspired young women filmmakers to go on and make short Westerns of their yes, own.
0: They're, they're in the right location for it. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 It's shown in a lot of, I mean, as you probably know, there's a lot of, uh, it's shown a lot in colleges and, um, in, and universities in film history and history of the Western classes.
2: Yeah. The, the scholar, um, Jim Kitsis, who's one of the major scholars wrote a, a very, two.
0: there's two essays in this yes. book about.
2: Yeah. About it. And, and that's a textbook that's assigned so I, I think that yeah yeah that that's the ticket. You you get written about in a, a textbook that gets assigned a lot and uh, that's that's the way to get your film She's shown. His essay is so, a
0: love letter also. It was really It is extraordinary.
2: Yeah,
1: he calls it an exemplary postmodern Western for anyone who wants to look up the reference. So Maggie, I just want to thank you again for joining us today on the show to talk about your movie. I I hope it's clear from Andrew and I how much we admire the film and just it's just a great entertaining movie too. It's it's like holds you for the entire two hours it's paced beautifully so i can't say enough about it
0: well obviously it's work i'm very proud of and i'm really grateful that there are actually so many people out there who love the film and who are keeping it alive so and i love talking about it so thank you for inviting me it's great to meet you both pleasure throughout history Society has driven women to make difficult decisions in the name of survival. Here
1: she is, boy, come
0: and go! You're mine now!
1: Come give me my money! I sold her the affair and
0: square! Some have chosen surrender. Some have chosen escape. We'll find you And some It's against the law to dress improper to your sex have made the boldest choice of all. Joe Monahan went searching for a new life. Many different sorts of men come here. And most of them leave the same. And found a world she never dreamed of.
1: You know, you're about the most mysterious
0: person who ever came to Ruby City. I see Mary's eyes follow you. Will you be courting her? Yeah? No. Nice night you've been waiting for. I don't think so.
1: Little Joe, I think you should reconsider. As a man can get diseases. He don't do it regularly. Little Joe, you are the
0: unfriendliest fella I ever met, and frankly, quite peculiar. What do you think would happen if they found out about me? You made a fool out of me, Josephine. Little Joe Monahan turns out to be a woman. I'll keep my promise, Josephine. They'd kill us. <laughs> don't percy i'll find you and i will kill you the ballad of little joe a film by maggie greenwald
1: well that wraps up our show until next time i'm matthew Chernoff, and i'm andrew patrick nelson and you've been listening to how the west was cast
0: well that was our show we thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing you. <laughs>